Now, back to the Frontier Freedom Hour with Jeff Hunt, sponsored by Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University. Here's Jeff Hunt. Well, friends, welcome back to the Frontier Freedom Hour. Jeff Hunt here, director of the Centennial Institute. We're very honored to have in the studio with us, Jamie, from the University of Texas at Austin School of Law, one of the preeminent religious freedom thinkers in the country, Stephen Collis. Uh, we're back now to our second segment. Uh, so if you missed the first one, you can always go back to our podcasts and learn more at FrontierFreedomRadio.com. But uh, Stephen, tell us about the history of religious freedom thought in this nation, how we got to where a baker from the city of Lakewood has to fight all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in order to defend religious freedom. This didn't just happen upon us. We have been in a pattern and a uh, and a pathway on this religious freedom thought for for since the founding of this country. So give us kind of a historical background of how our country thinks about religious freedom. Sure, happy to do it. And and one thing I'll emphasize is the the arguments we're having today are nothing new. In fact, Jack Phillips is bringing the exact same arguments that the Quakers were bringing at the time of the founding of the United States. So let me let me flesh that out a little bit. Prior to the founding, if you go all the way back to the Reformation. You know, the Catholic Church largely dominated in Europe. There were pockets of people who disagreed with its teachings, but none of their ideas really gained much steam. And then uh, Gutenberg invents the printing press, which allows ideas to spread much faster. Um, and Martin Luther creates his 95 theses of things that he sees are problematic in, in Catholic doctrine and in Catholic practice. That spreads like wildfire. In fact, there's evident historical evidence that if you were to go to various shops around Europe, there would be two pamphlets you could get. One about potential invading armies, and the second one was these 95 theses and, and what are the problems with you know, the, Catholic, uh, the Catholic Church as, as seen through the eyes of Luther and people who agreed with him. So um, what ends up happening is you get large groups of people joining together to protest the Catholic Church, and that's where the word Protestant comes from, Protestant. Right, so then that starts to grow rapidly all throughout Europe, and that's the Reformation, and it's a massive and important religious movement, as we all know. Well, what ends up happening then is for the next three hundred years, Protestants and Catholics fight with each other for control of government, and and in some of these wars, they lasted for thirty years. Estimates are as high as as many as twelve million people died in some of the wars. In France, Protestants and Catholics went back and forth each one getting control of government and then using the power of government to oppress people they disagreed with. And those est the estimates there are that as much as 20% of the nation of France uh, died in those religious wars. This goes on and on and on and on. And by the time you get a little bit before the founding of the United States, philosophers start to ask the question, how can we overcome this? Mm. How can we find, neither side's going away. So how can we live together in peace? And at first, folks like John Locke came up with the idea of tolerance. He says, well, we can have a favored church by the state that is, you know, supported by the government and everything else, but it has to be tolerant towards everyone else. That was a step in the right direction, but it really didn't go all the way. So by the time you get to the founding, the founders had realized that tolerance wasn't enough. And George Washington even wrote a letter to the first Jewish synagogue in the United States where he says, we no longer speak of tolerance as if there's one group of people that are special and other people, and they're simply allowing other people to enjoy their rights. Um, the, the idea then became that there has to be equal and complete liberty, which was something James Madison had written. And this idea of equal and complete liberty meant 
all different people of different religious faiths have to be able to live alongside one another, treated equally under the law, where government is not playing a role in influencing people's religious volunteerism. And what we ended up with essentially are two doctrines that came up side by side. One was the protection for the free exercise of religion. People should, government should be limited in how much it can burden people's religious exercise. And the other one is government could not favor one religion over another. It's those two pillars working together that create what we call religious freedom in the United States. We've essentially been fighting about it ever since in terms of what are the limits of those two principles. And just to go back to Jack Phillips and the cake shop, he is, there's a law passed that says you can't discriminate against people based on sexual orientation. He is asking for an exemption from that law because it burdens his free exercise of religion by forcing him to participate in something that violates his religious faith. That is not a new argument. It's the argument people have been making ever since this idea of protecting the free exercise of religion has been around. And if you go all the way back to the founding of the United States, the Quakers made the exact same argument. The Quakers were pacifists. They, they couldn't take up arms. But this new country that had formed saw enemies on all sides, and they had a mandatory military service law. Quakers said, we need an exemption to that. And the founders of the United States granted that exemption. But people have been asking for those types of religious accommodations literally from the founding to today, and we're just seeing an extension of it as we keep going, and the Supreme Court has to continue to address it. What is amazing is that government makes the same arguments today. No matter who's in power, government makes the same <laughs> arguments today that people made against the Quakers at the time of the founding, and the Supreme Court has to continually step in and reinforce this idea that you cannot burden people's religious exercise unless you have a truly compelling interest and have taken the most narrow means possible of achieving that interest. Do you think the the decision with Jack Phillips addressed that, though? It seemed very narrow, right? It kind of went back to the Civil Rights Commission here in Colorado and said, well, it's, you're, you guys are very explicitly anti-Christian, anti-at least conservative Christian. So uh, they didn't seem to really address that. So these kind of civil rights laws still are on the books, and that thing really hasn't been addressed. That issue on exemptions as it relates to uh, protected classes it doesn't seem to have been addressed by the U.S. Supreme Court yet. It, it was addressed, but it, they're addressing it more on a case-by-case -case basis. So one thing they've said is, uh, and the lesson, the takeaway from the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision is that if government explicitly is targeting someone because of their religious beliefs, if they are showing hostility mm. towards someone's religious beliefs, then essentially they can't enforce that law against the person that they're targeting. And in, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, there was evidence that they were targeting Jack Phillips because of his beliefs, that the commission was hostile towards him and his beliefs, um, very much antagonistic. They were not acting as a neutral arbiter trying to decide this, the issue, right? And so that lack of neutrality basically guarantees the religious exemption. So we know from that the importance of neutrality. It's something we've known for a long time. Supreme Court didn't do anything new in Masterpiece. They mm -hmm. simply clarified and reapplied this idea that government has to be neutral and cannot be hostile towards people's religious beliefs. But there are still other cases out there where they have to continue to try to flesh out how people get religious exemptions and under what circumstances should they get free exercise exemptions. Do you think there will be a, a serious issue in this country if a, if a law like the Equality Act gets passed, where it takes kind of the protected class issues that we see in the state of Colorado and puts that on a national level um, and threatens a lot of issues, whether it's uh, ability of students to go to a Christian college using federal grants. It's, I mean, it, uh, there's a lot of complicated factors there with a law like the Equality Act. 
Um, it, it feels like from our perspective, from my perspective, that this is a, an issue that we're going to continue to have to deal with, kind of the LGBTQ versus uh, historical Orthodox Christian perspectives. Uh, what, what does the future look like between these two uh, issues? So, so I don't like thinking of, I don't like thinking of them as, um, religious liberty versus LGBTQ plus rights. Mm -hmm. I actually think religious liberty is the solution to that conflict. I think what's actually happening here is you have people with very new beliefs about human sexuality, and then you have people with traditional beliefs about human sexuality. Essentially, these are two very different, if you want to, this will offend people on both sides, but essentially you've got two different religious views about human sexuality. Mm -hmm. And I think the spirit of the religion clauses is the solution there. People can coexist with these very different religious views if one side will agree that they don't need to use the power of government to force their views on the other side. So the Equality Act, like any good statute, has a really beautiful name, but it really is an all-out victory for people with the new beliefs, Mm -hmm. right? It's not really achieving equality. It's trying to ensure that the new beliefs will dominate in every facet of society and people with the traditional beliefs will have really no defenses against these new laws. Uh, and, and it's not as if it's the people with the new beliefs are the only ones who have that attitude. There's plenty of people on the political right, especially the far right, who would love to see a world where they have a total victory and don't achieve anything. Um, I do think, however, there's a way to pass laws that can protect LGBT citizens um, so that they can participate in society like the rest of us, but that they are also, but people who have the traditional beliefs are also protected. You know, Take a case like Masterpiece. There's no reason that should have been litigated for seven years and gone all the way up to the Supreme Court. It would have been very, very easy uh, for David and Charlie. You know, they left the shop. They had a new cake within 24 hours for free. Um, I'm relatively certain Jack Phillips might be the only cake shop owner in the entire Denver metro area who had his religious beliefs. They could have gone and gotten a cake anywhere else. And we could have gone, we all could have proceeded with the American tradition of live and let live, even though there's people who disagree with us vehemently on various issues, right? So I do think the Equality Act represents one extreme. There are other statutes that represent the other extreme. The reality is we can find a balance. There's a statute in Congress called the Fairness for All Act. People might disagree with the specifics of that, but I think the spirit of it is right. This idea of why don't we find ways to just allow all of us to live and let live and recognize that we're going to live in a society with people who have different beliefs than us, but we don't need to force our beliefs on each other. And right now I see both sides making that mistake. We've got to wrap up here in just a second, but from their perspective, I'm just going to take the the perspective of the LGBTQ community because we've dealt with this for years, so I, I, I think I understand their perspective. Uh, they look at this as a civil rights issue, not a religious issue, so they don't see it as kind of, well, this is just our religious values and we want to live. They see it as on par with the battles for civil rights of the 60s, and we don't give avowed racists, uh, you know, the freedom to be able to to run racist schools and receive government funding and stuff like that. So from their perspective, it's a civil rights issue. What's what's your take on that? So I understand that argument. And uh, I do think it's important for folks on the political right not to give them fuel for that argument. In other words, not anywhere they can not to be discriminating, especially based on people's status. But I also think that argument runs into a number of scientific problems. So as an academic, I can't just ignore the science. The reality is, uh, if you look at the LGBTQ plus acronym, none of those things equal each other and none of them equal race. Each is unique scientifically and the law needs to recognize that. And by there, I'm talking about whether or not they're immutable characteristics. We're going to be back here with Stephen Collis just after these uh, advertisements. So stick around and we're going to talk about his upcoming book. So we'll be right back. Thank you. Thank you. 